This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 153 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a legendary actor and director, someone who has been known to the public for almost all of his 63 years and who is still creating top-notch entertainment, the great Ron Howard. Howard first made his name as a child actor, appearing from age 6 through 14 on The Andy Griffith Show, which aired on CBS from 1960 through 1968, and on which he played Opie, the son of a sheriff, in the fictional small town of Mayberry. During his later teen years, Howard appeared in George Lucas's seminal 1973 nostalgia film American Graffiti, which looked back at life in the 50s. And then, starting a year later, in a hit ABC series that dealt with similar subject matter, Happy Days, on which he played Richie Cunningham from 1974 through 1980. In the middle of his run on Happy Days, Howard also began directing, starting with the 1977 B-movie Grand Theft Auto, continuing with a string of TV movies, and then eventually graduating to major motion pictures with 1982's Night Shift. That was followed by, among others, 1984's Splash, 1985's Cocoon, 1989's Parenthood, 1995's Apollo 13, which was nominated for the Best Picture Oscar, 1998's Ed TV, 2001's A Beautiful Mind, which won the Best Picture Oscar and for which he won the Best Director Oscar, 2003's The Missing, 2005's Cinderella Man, 2006's The Da Vinci Code, 2008's Frost Nixon, which was nominated for the Best Picture Oscar and for which he received his second Best Director Oscar nomination, and 2013's Rush. Through Imagine Entertainment, a production company that he co-founded in 1986 and co-runs to this day with Brian Grazer, he's also been a prolific producer, not only of projects made for the big screen, but also for the small, including From the Earth to the Moon, for which he won a Best Miniseries Emmy in 1998, Felicity, Parenthood, and Arrested Development, for which he won a Best Comedy Series Emmy in 2006. This year, Howard is involved with two massively acclaimed TV projects, either or both of which could return him to the Emmy race. The first is the limited series Genius, National Geographic's first foray into scripted television, which is still rolling out and offers a look into the life and work of Albert Einstein. Howard co-produced it with Grazer and directed its pilot himself. The second is the documentary The Beatles, Eight Days a Week, an exploration of the four years the Fab Four spent touring before deciding only to do studio albums, which Howard co-produced with Grazer and directed, and which Hulu streamed. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Howard and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how he wound up working and having his creative instincts nurtured and encouraged as a child actor, particularly on The Andy Griffith Show, 
Why, during the run of Happy Days, he experienced stage fright and began pursuing directing opportunities, which led him to Roger Corman. What brought him and Grazer together in 1979 and has sustained their professional partnership since 1986? Why, as a director, he transitioned away from comedy and towards drama and found that Apollo 13 and A Beautiful Mind both served as not only daunting challenges, but also major confidence boosters? Why this year he has derived so much pleasure from helping to bring to fruition the Einstein and Beatles projects, which couldn't be more different, and much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mr. Howard, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate you coming in. And we always begin with just a basic, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I know you have a more interesting answer than most. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was born in Duncan, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I was not raised there. I was born there because that was my mom, Jean Howard's hometown. My father was in the Air Force at the time, and unfortunately, they'd had a stillborn baby the year before on the Air Force base. And my mom, anxious about, about you know, my delivery, really wanted to go to her home and her home doctor. And so I was delivered by the same man who had delivered her, wow. the same doctor. And my dad got out of the Air Force, and we went back to New York. He was from Kansas and Oklahoma, mm-hmm. but they had met at OU went back to New York and began pursuing his career as an actor. My mom had acted at University of Oklahoma, but by the time I was born, she had decided not to really pursue it professionally. Sure. You know, one thing led to another, mostly him directing summer stock and realizing that I was picking up on some of the dialogue and could learn lines. Right. And I, I wound up acting <laughs> as a child. My first job was uh, started, I don't know, a couple of days after my fourth birthday. And when, when that was over, we moved to California because my dad who is kind of a Western type, with the craze for making TV Westerns had taken hold. And so he moved from New York. We drove in a car, cross country, I remember it, and settled in Burbank, California in 59, which is where I was raised. Now, was there something, though, about even as young as 18 months you were being put into a movie? What was that about? Yeah, my dad went AWOL for a minute while he was in the Air Force <laughs> so that he could play the bad guy in a grade C Western okay. called Frontier Woman. Okay. Yeah, while while they were doing that, apparently they, they decided they needed a crying baby as an extra <laughs> for a little bit in a scene where a politician's giving an endless speech, boring everybody. So the director asked if, I, if they thought I could do it. And they said, uh, maybe. And I had been playing with like a toy tomahawk Mm -hmm. or something 
And so they, they got the idea that if they rolled the cameras and let me play with the tomahawk a little bit and then take it away, <laughs> well, that might make me cry. And it worked. It worked. <laughs> it was my first little lesson in method acting. Right. Well, that's great. And then the it sounds like, you know, you, you mentioned there were little things early on, but just to note, I guess I see some of the earliest credits are things like Playhouse 90 and The Twilight Zone. But from what I gathered, the big turning point in a way was when you went on General Electric Theater. What happened there? Yeah, well, I did do the live television, which was a big key. My dad who's still still with us, yeah. Rance Howard, acting up a storm yeah. and, and, and very healthy. He was kind of a genius of a father and a teacher. So that's the great blessing in my life, along with my mom. But I really liked that first acting job. And, and I remember it. I remember loving the environment. And it was like a playground to me. Not the one at 18 months, the one at... No, the, the one at age four, <laughs> right, right, which, right. Which, uh, which was shot in Vienna, Austria with Ewell Brenner wow. and Bigger Than Life. Deborah Carr. It was, it was, I remember it. It was yeah. fun. But the next professional jobs were actually on, I think the first maybe was the Red Skelton show where I was part of the, he, he played this hobo and he had kids hanging around him. And some of those kids, one of them was Jay North who played Dennis the Menace later. Mm-hmm. But the fact that I could do well at age, you know, five on a live show led me to do Playhouse 90. That, that really got casting directors attention and I worked a tremendous amount that year, including this General Electric Theater program based on comic book uh, Barnaby and Mr. O'Malley. Mm-hmm. And Bert Lahr, in fact, played my character's imaginary fairy godfather. <laughs> and uh, Mel Blanc did the voice of this other little, you know, kind of fairy character that was bouncing around. McPhee, or I think it was <laughs> called. And it was a great role. And that led to the Andy Griffith show. And it, it, Barnaby and Mr. O'Malley was supposed to be a pilot for a series and Sheldon Leonard the great late great Sheldon mm-hmm. Leonard producer of the Andy Griffith show called my agent and I think even spoke to my dad and yeah. said well I I'd like to take a second position right on your son because I'm doing a series with Andy Griffith and and we think he needs a son wow and had there been something though with Ronald Reagan in there I know he was involved with GE theater well but- he was the host of GE theater and apparently took it upon himself to single me out and you know he hosted the show yeah. and and he and he would do a wrap up and in his wrap up he just sort of improvised and a special thanks to little Ronnie Howard making <laughs> his debut or something right, like that right. and it was noticed yeah. and it was appreciated by uh, my family i'm yes. sure he, i'm sure that it, every vote every time they could vote for Ronald Reagan they did <laughs> so now Sheldon Leonard reaches out and and as you reference this is about Opie not that we need to remind anyone but the son of this great small town sheriff in the Andy Griffith show I guess how much did when that came along you were on that show from between the ages of 6 and 14 right, right. so how did that actually affect your life versus a you know quote unquote normal kids were you well, still in school or how did it work I I had a kind of a double life going thanks again to my parents yeah. who wouldn't allow me to do a lot of work away from the Andy Griffith show yeah. I did do some choice parts I was in the music man I was in the courtship yeah. of Betty's father but they they really protected that hiatus period and of course during that period of time I think the first season of the Andy Griffith show was might have been 39 episodes wow and we routinely did 32 for the entire run of the show so it really took up most of the year but it was a way of life for me however we were living in a house in, in Burbank California and when I wasn't shooting I would go to public school 
And, you know, look, sometimes that would be a little bit of a challenge, particularly as the show became popular. Kids would be a little a little cruel, a little tough. There'd be an adjustment period. But I also really loved all of that and looked forward to that. So I had a I had a kind of a duality going on there. And, and the, the people at the Andy Griffith Show on the production side and the producers and so forth really wanted that for me. And so later as I started playing, you know, rec league, baseball and basketball there in Burbank, they would they would make sure that they would schedule around those games, nice, which is yeah. a kind of a crazy thing now yeah. that I'm a producer and a director. <laughs> I recognize just how, you know what, what a sacrifice that was for them. Sure. Just a quick two-part question about your time on that show. I read about something that happened in season two that was pretty significant for you, just in terms of your burgeoning creativity. And then season four, where there's an episode that a lot of people think is one of the best, if not the best, of the whole nine years of the of the program, where it's called Opie the Birdman, and I think that was a one where that again, is a, a well well remembered and yeah, both both pivotal moments. Look, the Andy Griffith Show environment was so formative for me. I recognize now that I I learned how to work, and I also learned how to create. Yeah, you know, as as a sort of simple. And homespun and straightforward as that show appears, Andy and everybody involved took it very, very seriously. There were no ad libs. This was not, the people weren't walking through and reading cue cards. It was about delivering on a set of themes and a tone and week after week making the show as good as it could be based on the people's creative sensibilities who were in charge, including Andy. And there was a very collaborative environment. Actors were allowed to speak up. It wasn't chaos, right. but we would do read-throughs and there'd be a period of time where the cast could stay and offer up any observations, ask any questions, make any notes, pitch any ideas. And beginning in season one, as a, you know, as a first grader who couldn't read, <laughs> I was there. My dad would have taught me my lines ahead of time. Sometimes he would read for me. Yeah. But I started raising my hand and sort of pitching fixes and I was a little annoyed because none of them were ever accepted. You know, it was kind of pissing me off. I do remember, and I remember it very vividly. It was the second episode of the second season. I had just turned seven. Mm-hmm. During the hiatus, I had done The Music Man. Yeah. So maybe I was feeling a little right. cocky. I don't know. <laughs> but I was supposed to come into the courthouse, and we were just rehearsing, and the director, yeah. Bob Sweeney, was there, and come in and say, hey, Pa, something. And, you know, Andy was over there with Barney and Otis was in the jail cell and and I stopped and the director said what is it and I said well I don't I don't think a kid would would say this line that way mm-hmm. and he said well how do you think a kid would say it and I pitched my my tweak <laughs> and he said okay good say it that way let's go <laughs> and I was I was just thunderstruck I was blown away I was a part of something right and I I just remember you know just this feeling of uh, warmth and excitement. And Andy looked at me from across the, the sheriff's office and said, what are you grinning at, youngin? Which is really the way he would, he <laughs> right, would talk, especially right. in those early days. Right. And uh, I said, well, that's the first idea of mine you've taken. <laughs> and he, and he, I swear to God, he said, it's the first one that was any damn good. <laughs> now let's rehearse the scene. <laughs> so I, I was just blessed to be in this situation where I witnessed, more than participated, I witnessed this creative problem solving, and it was a joy. And people would thrill to a good idea, and they would shout down a bad idea, and nobody's feelings got hurt. It was a process. And I learned on that show that 
making something that the public loved, that was a number one show, that could get get Emmy nominations and all of those things, well, that took a lot of hard work, but it could also be gratifying and even fun. Yeah. There's a lot of laughter around that set and also a lot of hard work from the first episode to the last one that I remember. And you did 209, I think. That was I, I, yeah, I think I did 209 out of the out of the 249 That's that they incredible. made. And, and, when, and when that show wrapped and Andy, it was a number one show in its last season. Yeah. But Andy wanted to move on. Don Knotts had already left the show. Right. And I was 14 years old and already knew I wanted to direct. And, but I cried. I mean, I was a teenager. Was, you, can you imagine how awkward that is to be crying at the rap party? <laughs> but it was uh, obviously a huge part of, of your life. And before we, we go to the next chapter, I just want to come back to that Opie the Birdman thing because this is where your character, it's an episode, accidentally kills a bird with his slingshot and oh, yes. raises the ends up raising the bird's children. But I think that from you know looking forward at what you ended up doing and and you know continuing to act beyond your childhood, was that an important something lesson out of that? Well, that... That show had an almost Capra-esque tone. Yeah. I mean, it had broad moments, and it wasn't a dramedy. It was more more comedy than yeah. anything else. But, you know, when, when it had heart, it played itself for, for, for truth mm-hmm. and honesty. And I think Sheldon Leonard, who had been a part of, of a lot of Frank Capra movies, may have brought that tone or that aesthetic and, and approach to the show. I never... I never you know, heard one way or another yeah. about that. But that was a that was a great episode. And Opie was always given a few good episodes every season mm-hmm. where the character was at the center. And and a lot of them were especially focused on on kind of family values and mm-hmm. moral and mm-hmm. and so forth. So so that one had a strong theme that people really remember. And I really did cry in that moment. It was I, it was one of the first times where I really real tears came and I was remembering the loss of a pet dog mm-hmm. and it just really came flooding. So I was I was learning already about a kind of balance between honesty and reality yeah. and and real drama and comedy. Well, so for you again the the Andy Griffith show ended at 68 and 5 years later you were in American Graffiti which I think was important not only because it's a great movie but from what I've read you had kind of a special relationship in a way with George Lucas, who for him, it was a, it wasn't the first, but it was very early for him and in, in his career. But it, it promoted another kind of way of working that I think you have liked. Yeah, that, was, that was revelatory on a lot of levels. George had directed a legendary short film, THX 1138. Yeah. And then Francis Coppola had executive produced and facilitated him making a feature version of that, mm-hmm. which hadn't been a big hit, but I remember it had come out. By then, I knew I wanted to direct. In fact, I'd been accepted to USC Film School, and American Graffiti was made during the summer break from my, you know, having graduated high school gotcha. and, and beginning as a freshman at USC. Yeah. Where George had also gone. Where right? George had gone and yeah. was a legend. Yeah. Was an absolute legend. And so, you know, I knew about him as sort of one of the young guns in Hollywood, but more importantly, as this famous SC grad. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him a lot about that from the beginning, and he was very quiet in those days. I mean... He didn't say much really? at all, and yet he had this he had this vision, and he gave us a tremendous amount of freedom. I'd never worked this way. He shot with two cameras. The great Haskell Wexler was not the cinematographer, but he was he was supervising the style and was around a, a lot and operating. It was shot at incredibly low light levels. We shot in San Francisco and in Petaluma, in Marin County there. And it was San Rafael also. It was 
a completely different culture because everybody involved were they were San Francisco based. They were film students yeah. who loved the medium as art. Yeah. And you know, later as I went to film school and began to understand sort of the thematic definition of movies and the sort of the visual poetry of the medium and the possibilities. I grew a lot, but I mean, on the Andy Griffith show, if anyone had ever mentioned anything as a, as a metaphor, <laughs> they would have been laughed off the stage, you know, but there with American Graffiti was a, a, a crew of people, men and women. A lot of them looked like hippies, not yeah. George, right, right. but it was a absolute announcement of a new way of thinking and, and working. And when I saw that film cut together, despite the fact that we'd had no, we were allowed to improvise. It was shot in a very spontaneous way. There were no marks on the ground. Mm-hmm. He wanted it to be as kind of discovered as it could be. Mm-hmm. Despite all that, it was so seamless when I watched it. Yeah. And George had told me when I went on my very first audition, he said, well, it's a musical. And I said, well, you know, I know I was in The Music Man, but I actually think it was, they thought it was cute that I couldn't sing because I really cannot sing. Sorry, you know, I don't want to waste your time. He said, no, no, you don't have to sing. And later when I began to see how those songs aligned with each scene and I asked him about it, he said, well, that's why I thought it was a musical because each scene was written with a song in mind. And, you know, it was a world creation. He was recreating something that he understood, but with a level of detail that was pretty mind-blowing. And so a few years later when he made Star Wars, I knew he wanted to do a science fiction movie. That's all I knew. Right. He wanted to do a ad- science fiction adventure. He was talking about it even on back then. Uh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, he was talking about it. And and he said, you know, kind of like Flash Gordon, but not Flash Gordon. Kind <laughs> of like the old serials, but, you know, a little like 2001, but but different from both of those. And he, he couldn't really explain it. Right. You know, like a lot of people, I was out there at the at, with my with my wife, Cheryl, mm-hmm. or I guess we were still probably boyfriend and girlfriend right. then, you know, standing in line to see it at the Chinese. <laughs> and I saw Star Wars and came back out and we said, you want to see it again? And she said, yes. And we just got back into another two hour line oh my God. to see it again. And I, if I have it correct here, it sounds like almost a decade later when you were potentially going to direct your first major film, it sounds like he might've put in a good word for you. Yeah. I had done some television movies, yeah. produced them yep. as well, had left Happy Days and was working with Brian Grazer on an idea of his Night Shift. Right. And he was right on the bubble as to whether or not it was going to be made or not, or whether I'd get the job, mm-hmm. I think. And Alan Ladd Jr. was in charge of this of this production. It was his company. Yeah. And he called George and said, what do you think of this guy? And George gave me a thumbs up, apparently. That's great. So that, that made a world of difference. Well, the other thing that's interesting is, would Happy Days, which went on the air a year after American Graffiti came out, would that have even happened without American Graffiti? I don't think it would have, but we did do the Happy Days pilot prior to American Graffiti. Yeah. And it was a little more tonally based on a big hit movie from a couple of years prior to that, Summer of 42. Okay. So that initial pilot, which was an episode of Love American Style, you know, also produced by Gary Marshall. Right. It had a very gentle tone, much more consistent and familiar to me, maybe with sort of the Andy Griffith show. It was a single camera. It It was warm. It had humor. Not a lot of broad jokes. Right. But Marion Ross and Anson Williams were also in it. Interesting. And it didn't sell. After American Graffiti, the network was looking around for um, you know something that could be set in the 50s. Nostalgia piece. And yeah. nostalgia piece. And Gary said, well, you've got one, and you've <laughs> even got the same kid in it. Right. And they said, oh, well, let's try it again. And they wrote a new script, but they... 
He said, well, I don't know about him, though. So I, <laughs> I actually had to go in and test against Again? a bunch of people. Oh, yeah, geez. yeah. But Gary directed my test himself, and I think he kind of made sure that I yeah. I got I got the nod. And just to remind anyone who not again, I can't imagine anyone needs a reminder, but this was Richie Cunningham. And the thing that surprised me to learn preparing for this was that Happy Days was actually sort of intimidating for you, even though you'd been acting all your life. And the reason it sounds like is because this was the first time you were doing it in front of a live audience. Yeah, well the first year and a half we did it as a single camera show and that was very familiar for me. And even though I had left USC film school to do it, and I was a little frustrated. I was writing scripts, I was trying to make short films on the weekends. I, my dream was to be a director, but this was a this was a great job, yep. and we were successful-ish. We were very strong in our first year, mm-hmm. half year, mm-hmm. so-so and fading in our second year. But Henry Winkler's character had completely captivated everybody's imagination, and Fred Silverman, who was running ABC at that time, decided with Gary Marshall and Tom Miller to make it an audience show and put it in front of a crowd, like you know Gary had done Dick Van Dyke Show yep. and The Odd Couple and others. And lean more on the Fonzie character and, you know, and, and go for bigger laughs. And we, we did a, a, a sort of a trial run at the end of our second season. Oh, my God, I didn't throw up, but I was really, really terrified. Because there were now 300 people there 300 watching 300 people. And somehow I, I never thought about the camera being millions, but those 300 <laughs> scared the right. crap out of right. me. And when the show was picked up, Henry... We remained such great friends, and he was sort of a big brother figure for me in a lot of ways. Brilliant guy, yeah. brilliant guy, and, and a very experienced stage actor. Mm-hmm. He said, you're going to take to this like a duck to water, Ron. You're all right. And Tom Bosley was a veteran stage actor, and Jerry Paris was a world-class comedy director. And yeah. so that second, that that third season, which was our first we not only really exploded as a show behind Henry Winkler's popularity and this energized you know, comedy, but I learned so much that I was so grateful for just a few years later when I was directing Night Shift right. and then later Splash because I'd done humor, but I hadn't really been around the timing right. and the energy that you need to really land big jokes. And it also allowed me to meet Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, who became so important to my career yes. by writing, you know, some of the some of the most important and successful comedies of the 80s and into the 90s. And, you know, a few of them I directed and Brian Grazer produced. Right. Some people speculate, why was was Happy Days so popular? What do you make of the idea that it was because, you know, here, first one on the air right after Watergate. Again, is there, it's just sort of the nostalgia. uh, Nostalgia. Nostalgia. And as I witnessed the sort of the strengthening and the power of Happy Days and what it meant, and I tried to understand how this very playful, simple show was becoming this number one show. And people talked about, you know, loving the nostalgia. Well, I was familiar with that because of American Graffiti, which in in some ways, along with Grease, kind of of reminded pop culture and the people who who make entertainment that there was a real audience for this, a real yearning for this. And I do think it had everything to do with the fact that we were coming down from that very intense period of the 60s. I don't think those shows necessarily would have worked in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. But I do remember Andy Griffith constantly saying that Mayberry is not the South of today. We're playing it as though it's here in the mid-60s, but in reality, the tone is, you know, my boyhood town. So there was nostalgia there, And too. there was nostalgia wow. sort of baked into the feeling of the Andy Griffith show. And the interesting thing is that neither show has been off the air in America 
since they, since they aired. That's crazy. And, and just for the record, your tenure on Happy Days went seven of its, I think, ten and seven seasons. And a, seven and a half years. Seven and a half, 171 episodes. Encompassing, by the way, not just briefly, if we can, if I can ask you if you remember anything about this from season five, the episode that inspired the term jumping the shark, right? <laughs> was, was that season five? Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, the show had really spiked yeah. and it had spiked incredibly behind, you know, Henry's genius with this, with the, the Fonzie character, what he invented, what could be written for him and the way just people were responding. And yet it was getting, he was becoming more and more of a, almost a, a comic superhero, right. you know, and I remember shooting that episode. We were out in, in Paradise Cove, mm-hmm. I think, shooting and Donnie Most and I, two redheads were just getting slaughtered in the sun. <laughs> we were sitting around talking and the episode was just, it was day one. Donnie was kind of thinking and he, he looked around and he said, what do you think of the script? And I said, well, you know, it's, it's back to one camera and I, you know, I think they're going to punch it up a little bit and this, that and the other. And I, I didn't, I didn't have any real problem with right. it. And he just looked at me and he said, he's jumping a shark now. <laughs> and he literally said it, and I and I said, "Well, yeah, I guess he is. People love it." And he said, oh, "He said okay." And of course, we had no say in the matter one way or another, and we did our jobs. But years later, when when that was cited as some kind of turning point, meanwhile, the show went on another six of years course, and was a huge success. Yeah, right. So I don't know if I really subscribe to the right. to the the accuracy of it. <laughs> but when the when the jump the shark phrase was first you know first printed. I immediately thought of Donnie. Yes. Oh, well, yeah, he was the first. <laughs> right. He, he was the first to feel it. That's great. So in the meantime, I guess it must have been during a hiatus or hiatus, whatever the, hi, what's the plural? Hiatus. During the break. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like that's when you first acted upon what you said had been a desire since you were a, a teenager to become a director, which really was not something at that point that many TV actors had gone on to do, right? No, it was pretty rare. Yeah. Pretty rare. And you this know, is Roger Corman factors in here? He really does. So this would have been like 76, so yeah. early in the life of the show, but just as it was becoming a number one right. show, right? he asked me to act in a movie called Eat My Dust, play the lead. <laughs> and it was a car crash comedy, a little like, I think he was sort of ripping off you know, Smokey and the Bandit yep. or, or something like that yep. or, or uh, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry right. or one of those. Right. But he wanted it to be a broad comedy and he wanted me to play this lead character. And I I had been trying to raise the money to do an independent character piece that I had written along with my father to direct it. Yeah. And I I thought I'd raised maybe half the money in Australia on a trip, that a publicity trip that I'd mm-hmm. gone on and I thought I'd talk to some people who would put up some money and, and you know, it wasn't quite an escrow, but it was very promising, I thought, <laughs> but it required domestic distribution in the U.S. and a co-financing situation. So I went to Roger and I said, I don't really want to do Eat My Dust, to be honest, <laughs> but, you know, what I really want to do is direct. Right. And he said, well, have you made any short films? And I, I, I had, and I showed him th- those, and I said, I have this script. I think I have half the money. If you'd put up the other half and distribute it, you know, I would, I do eat my dust. Well, he read the script yeah. and he said, it's a good script. It's funny. It's got heart. He said, it's, it's really an art house piece. It's a character piece. And that's not what I do, but your short films show a lot of promise. You've been doing this all your life. Mm-hmm. I am the one that, you know, he said, I, I like to think I turn out directors for Hollywood the way USC turns out <laughs> running backs. 
they were very famous right. for turning out the, right. the, the, the you know the world class right. Heisman Trophy winning uh, running backs in those days. But he said, I, I won't let, promise you you can direct a movie, but I'll promise that you and your father could could write an outline, and if I like that. You do a script. It was a step deal. If I like that, you can direct it as long as you're in it. Right. And if all that fails, I'll let you direct the car crashes on another comedy. Right. <laughs> so, okay. well, the second unit job on a Roger Corman movie wasn't exactly the debut right. I was right. I was dreaming of. <laughs> but it, everyone else had been so patronizing about the idea, and yeah. the system was so locked down. You know, this is there was no MTV, there was no cable, there was no Sundance. You know, a person like a John Cassavetes, who was out there making independent movies, was an absolute renegade maverick. Right. And very difficult to get them made and seen. So I said yes to that. And and Eat My Dust was a big hit for what it was. Right. And Roger said, I'm going to make good on my our deal. I went in and I pitched a lot of different ideas. Oh, cool sci-fi thing uh you know like a noir you know thing about the the snuff films or something you know and i had a lot of interesting edgy movies i wanted to make but he said "Uh, those are all very interesting stories you know roger's very erudite (laughs) he was an engineering student from caltech or someplace and he said uh very interesting stories but let me tell you what i'm thinking when we were testing titles for Eat My Dust, <laughs> there was a title that came in a very close second, Grand Theft Auto. If you can fashion a car crash comedy, which you must star in, of course, <laughs> that we can correctly entitle Grand Theft Auto, I believe I'd make that picture. <laughs> and <laughs> within about 36 hours, my dad and I had a pitch, and two weeks later we had an outline, and, and two weeks after that we had a script, and it was the fastest green light I think I've ever gotten. And that was, I mean, you know, it sounds like it would have not been what you would have chosen originally to be your big debut, but let's just note, made for only 600000 gross $15 million. That's not bad. It was very, it was even well-reviewed, yes. which was a huge relief, because, yes. you know, I didn't know what to expect there. Right. And uh, no big premieres, nothing fancy, a lot of touring around and press. But the first time I actually saw it with a paying crowd, I went to the old Pickwick drive-in in Burbank. That's where I saw it. But I was proud. I loved it. I wasn't entirely proud of it. There were I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. But when I finished shooting, I remember looking at my young wife, Cheryl, and she'd known for, you know, we, we met in high school. So mm-hmm. she, she knew this was my dream and she'd helped out on that movie. My dad, Rance, had co-written it and, mm-hmm. and, and was an actor in it. And I remember we were having this re- impromptu rap party at the Saugus Speedway, this little, this little dive bar nearby. The bar band was doing, was the, playing the music. We were having the greatest time. We literally was, drink, I was drinking Flamers. <laughs> and I just felt like this, I loved this even more than I dreamed I ever would as difficult as it was, you know, and I started that, I started that film age 23, you know, like about 150 pounds. And when we wrapped, I think I was 132. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I had run my ass off and not slept and had to star in it and, and direct it. And it was everything that I'd, I'd ever dreamed it would be as an experience and more, even though the film, you know, didn't reflect what I hoped I could one day you know, achieve. And so in the intervening period between making that film and when you did get to do the kind of film that you wanted to direct, I believe that's when you and Brian Grazer first crossed paths, right? This well, is like 1979? Yeah, I did three TV movies okay. in the interim. Okay. One of the first really powerful female executives, Deanne Barkley, okay. who was in charge of TV movies at NBC, 
she supported the idea of actors directing and Michael Landon had directed a TV movie or two for her. I think Bo Bridges directed a TV movie for her. And so she was very supportive. She liked Grand Theft Auto and thought I could do it. And she let me. And for every, every hiatus for three years in a row, I executive produced and directed and sometimes wrote a TV movie. For her, wow. For her. And that, you know, I, I gained a lot of experience. The projects became a little bit more ambitious. The last one was starring Betty Davis, and it was sponsored right. by, by GE. And it was a very inspiring story. Not a true story, but, uh, you know, about a paraplegic girl who learns to fly. And Betty Davis played this crusty... <laughs> aerobatic pilot that takes on this tu- you know tutors this this girl and 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 liberates her in a lot of ways and and this elevates her belief in herself in it's called Skyward. and how was she she was a little crusty she, <laughs> she 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 didn't much like the fact that this 25 year old guy from a tv sitcom was directing and i also insisted on casting a young woman a girl she was only 14 mm-hmm. at the time susie gilstrap who was a paraplegic, mm-hmm. and I auditioned her and felt she could play the role. So she was a complete amateur, but wow. I, I just believe she really had something special. And wow. she gave a good performance. Yeah. But that frightened Betty Davis. She was pretty annoyed by that. In fact, I, I didn't meet her in person until we were shooting, but in pre-production, she wanted to talk to me about the casting issue and lodge her complaint. And I said, well, I'm very committed to, to this actress. And during the conversation, she kept calling me Mr. Howard. And I said, Miss Davis, please just call me Ron. And she said, I will call you Mr. Howard until I decide whether I like you or not. And slammed the phone down. So I was tossing and turning like a maniac. But I found that I really could work with her and that great actors want to be led. They want to be worked with. They want to be guided. And they certainly want to be put in a position where... They have their best opportunity to discover the character and what they have to offer. And that was a lesson that I learned that I've, I've really tried to create over and over and over again, which is go create an environment on the set when you're working on a live action production where the actors feel they have a chance to excel. You create that, create that environment. And not just the actors. Right. Cinematographers, production sure. designers, the key contributors you know, have the most at stake. I want them to feel they have their best shot if they're working on a project that I'm directing. And eventually she did call you Ron. <laughs> she did call me Ron. Yeah, at the end of that very first day, it had been a little contentious. She'd questioned a few directions, but she, she came to accept and like right. you know, some of the ideas that I offered up. Right. And when it was over, I said, well, Miss Davis, okay, that's it. You're wrapped. Thank you. Great first day. And she said, okay, Ron, see you tomorrow. <laughs> And I swear, she, she patted me on the ass. So I, I, uh, that didn't make her entirely easy to deal no. with for the remaining seven days of her eight-day right. commitment. Right. But when it was over, she paid me the greatest compliment I think she could have paid me, which she said, you know, I know you're transitioning from acting, and you can do this. In fact, you might be another Weiler. Wow. Well, I never quite lived up to that praise. Uh, They're very but that's few, a, uh, but that's a uh, William Wyler is is uh, you know in the absolute pantheon. Sure. But it it meant the world to me that's that you feel that way. Well, let's let's come back though to this other thing that's going on that was major around these years, late seventies, early eighties for you. Where just because these days I feel like your name and Brian Grazer's name are more often than not mentioned in the same sentence. So how do you guys first cross paths? That was in 79, I believe. So then just seven years later, why did you decide to establish this this company that's still around to this day, Imagine Entertainment? Well, I had a production company making those television movies, and I did some other 
some you know a couple of pilots that I didn't direct, one that I did direct, and I and I enjoyed having a company and being a part of that. So there was a a, a little entrepreneurial bent there, and I I've always had it, and I think it's initially a quest to try to control as much as I could, and then and then later I found that I just enjoyed it. I liked the sort of duality of it, and I I'm a little impatient to just focus on one idea at a time. Yeah, and Brian. I met him through Deanne Barkley originally, okay. and then again on the Paramount lot, where we were the two youngest guys with offices on the lot. Him because he was a, a young, hustling, and effective TV movie producer, right. and 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 I because I'd negotiated an office in my <laughs> in my last Happy Days renegotiation. Right. <laughs> and Brian called me up and wanted to have one of these lunches, and it was honestly as strange as it sounds, it was probably about the first real Hollywood lunch that I'd had with a producer who had an idea. Was and this one of these, I know he's now even written a book about these curiosity conversations? I don't think so. I think this was networking. Okay. I think this was professional. Okay. His curiosity talks generally don't, aren't with people from the entertainment world. Okay. His, Brian's instinct has always been to kind of use his position in the industry as a bit of a lure to get people outside our world. Yep. To, to share yeah. ideas and talk and let Brian, you know, sort of experience that conversation and, 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 and pick up on the nuances of the way they see the world. Yeah. So I think this was just, you know, good, good old-fashioned networking. We, we ate at this place that's, I think it's gone now, Nicodell's. Mm-hmm. And he pitched me an idea, and, and I liked it, and we took it around and couldn't get it going. Couldn't get that one off the ground. But I liked Brian, and he had a lot of energy. And I was having a very difficult time, despite the TV movies, cracking the movie system. Yeah. And Brian was getting really quality pitches. And then he had another idea, and this one turned out to be Night Shift. Okay. And we got Night Shift made by using the writers from Happy Days, Gans, and Mandel. And they did a great job on it. And, and it was a fantastic experience. And we followed that up with Splash, which was another... A difficult one to get made, but incredibly rewarding and a top 10 hit in yeah. this year, and which was a complete Cinderella story. We were the first touchstone movie yeah. at Disney because I didn't want to make it G. I didn't want to make a G comedy and I didn't think a mermaid should be top, should have a you know bikini bra right. on. Right. I thought she needed to be topless, right. even if we never actually showed anything, right. covered right. it with hair and so forth. Right. But it, it was a great experience. And I still had my production company, and he was developing projects everywhere, and we became really good friends and kept talking to each other just about every day, but worked on other things. Right. I did Cocoon, and I did another movie, Gung Ho, mm-hmm. and, I, and I got a movie with George Lucas going, Willow. He, he was doing Spies Like Us and, and you know other really good movies. Real Genius was one of his that I really liked. But it was incredibly intensive. And we wanted more leverage. And we started having these conversations about what would it be if we could raise some money? What would it be if we had a company? Well, also, isn't it, just to interrupt for one sec, isn't it true that a frustration, understandably, is that Night Shift, which came out in 82, Splash, which came out in 84, these did very well, and yet others did well. It was not necessarily, it did not trickle down to the filmmakers. Yeah, well, it wasn't really financial because I think we were both felt like we were doing well enough. Yeah. It was it was less for us about about more equity in the films yeah. at that time and more about more latitude, more creative control, and a more dynamic slate building kind of opportunity. Yeah. And and we, we just felt that if we could 
if we could have most of the work happening in one office instead of chasing around to all the different studios and production companies and developing projects. And by the time we merged our, our efforts and formed Imagine, you know, I think he had 20-something projects in development, and so did I. Right. And we were hustling in that kind of way. So this is a way to really focus our efforts and create more leverage. And we did. And at first, our deal, in fact, our prices went down because we were betting on the on the company. It became a public company. Right. And uh, we were locked into a number that was far below what our actual earning power right. could be. But we were betting on the company. And the reason that at the outset and then for decades afterwards, the reason that you guys ended up with this production and distribution deal at Universal was because of Tom Pollock? Tom Pollock was on our, our board. He'd been a lawyer helping to you know, launch, launch the company in, in our public offering. And then when we were struggling in the beginning, he got a huge job at Universal and brought us over and gave us the distribution deal that we needed to, to make, make our business plan work. But things kept evolving and changing. And ultimately, we realized that a company of our size either needed a lot more money or we needed to diversify in a way that we weren't comfortable with at that time because we just wanted to focus right. on what we were doing. We didn't want to try to make acquisitions and so forth. And we weren't servicing the public or ourselves by being public. Right. So Tom Pollock and Universal joined with us and we took took the company private, which was another big gamble yes. financially. But we did, we did have the backing of a studio and a contract and we knew we were going to make more movies. And soon we were able to work off that debt and begin building the company for ourselves on yeah. our own behalf. People have observed, actually specifically the New York Times has observed at the time that your first three major movies, Night Shift, Splash, and Cocoon, the first three major ones that you directed, shared a common theme. All are, quote, stories about conservative, timid people disrupted and transformed by contact with an outside force, losing their inhibitions as they surrender to a new and confounding adventure, close quote. Is there any rhyme or reason for why that would have been? Something in us and also the people making the movies, because again, I didn't develop Cocoon. Right. I was brought on board with that one. You know, I, th I think there's wish fulfillment in that. So I, I think it's coincidence. It yeah. was not, not intentional, sure. but I, I think I probably related to those, those narrative values. You know, going back to The Andy Griffith Show, yeah. going through Happy Days, as playful and broad and zany as that show could be, and, but acting in dramas during the you know television movies and one or two of the movies that I directed were dramas. I began to realize that even in escapism, we as audiences we crave relevance. We crave thematic focus. It can be subtle, but it must be there. And nothing truly entertains us, whether it's the goofiest, zaniest movie, the youngest child's cartoon, or a drama based on, on real events, that without some sort of thematic power. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think most terrific projects, and now more than ever television shows as well, yeah. have a kind of matrix of thematic values. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to see threads of stories represent thematic ideas okay. and so what whatever the tone whatever the style those thematics wind up being something that you have to find and identify and as a storyteller you you better relate to them yeah because it directing is not entirely intellectual a good deal of it has to be emotional reaction yeah. to what you're seeing and feeling in all of those 
many, many decisions that you make every day. Right. So I think that those probably were thematic ideas that I did relate to. Hey, a lot of people, a lot of other people also but, did because they were very popular. And Well, I also felt that one of the big themes of Cocoon, for example, yeah. was always look ahead. That you never know at any point in your life when, you know, something life-changing could happen. Yeah. And then an in-change, often there are truths that are revealed mm-hmm. that surprise us yeah. and surprise our loved ones. With regard to Splash, there that was the first of, I think, five times you've worked with Tom Hanks. And I believe that's more than any other actor except maybe your father. <laughs> and I want to just ask, you know, because at that time... I don't know. I don't think too many people knew who Tom Hanks even was. So how did you come to him and what did you guys immediately hit it off? What was that about? We immediately hit it off. And I had met him once before because he was in the series Bosom Buddies. Yes. And he had filled in on our touring Happy Days softball team, which even (laughs) after I left the show, I continued to play on. Some things don't require a contract, you know. (laughs) So I knew a little bit about Tom. Louisa Vellis, who's my assistant, was my assistant then and, and, and still is today, mm-hmm. and we were struggling with Splash. She said, oh, have you seen Bosom Buddies? And I said, well, I haven't really watched it. And she said, you've got to see this Tom Hanks. He's so charming. And she sort of put him up for the role. Then Bobaloo Mandel and Lowell Gann said, oh, he did a guest shot on Happy Days. He was hilarious. Well, I hadn't seen that guest shot. Right. But he came in for the John Candy role and gave an audition. It was fantastic. And I said... He wanted to just read these sides yeah. and let him let him play the the younger brother, Alan, the lead. He was great. It was one of those things where he was absolutely in that sitcom groove. Not the one where you're phoning it in, mm-hmm. but <laughs> but the one where they're finding the character, they're 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 rewriting, they're improvising, they're riffing, and you as an actor are riding that wave of just getting getting things done yeah. and taking chances and and understanding quickly, you know, what the objective of the scene is and right. where the joke was. And he just had that kind of command. And he was so relaxed. And Brian saw it and agreed completely. And amazingly, the studio accepted us making the movie without, you know, a big male star. Yeah. All of the A-listers had turned it down. Crazy. Well, thankfully, that the beginning of this relationship that continues you know as recently as this past year but well the amazing thing was when we did Apollo 13 yes and Tom had been in some dramedies and he had he had done Philadelphia yeah and even Gump yeah but those hadn't been seen yet right and when I cast Tom in Apollo 13 I, I literally had you know, friends of mine, directors, come up and say, "What are you, are you making a comedy about space or something?" <laughs> but he he was so passionate about yeah. it, and I just knew he could do it. And so did Brian. Brian was completely supportive of, of Tom. Because by the time those movies came out, he had now won back to back Best Actor Oscars. By the time he came out, it sounded yes. pretty smart. So with one other thing that I've got to ask, just is with Parenthood, which was also successful. It felt like that was, I think that was the last for a while, at least, of, of the comedies. And then it there was this transition. Let's just note the next few, Backdraft, Far and Away, The Paper, Apollo 13, and Ransom. How much of this just is happens to be the way it, it shook out? And how much of it was, you know, a lot of filmmakers at, at a certain point say, you know, I guess do a quote-unquote serious movies. Yeah. You had once said, quote, I've always been involved in sort of pop entertainment you live with a little bit of frustration that that kind of work is not taken as seriously as other kinds of work was that the motivation for those next few 
it wasn't so much about being taken seriously as it was about flexing my own muscles. And I had acted in dramas and loved being around them and loved seeing them. So I think, I think it had more to do with my wanting to prove to myself and to the creative community, and I, and I suppose to audiences as well, that if I fell in love with a story, that genre issues were not going to nullify me from being a candidate, right. you know? And so, you know, so many of the great, great movies, you know, I've always said One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest might be my favorite. Me too. Also The Graduate, which is comedy and drama. Yeah. And, and so I've always been interested in that balance. You know, as I, as I began to move into that, then with Apollo 13, I, I felt the creative community embrace the yeah. idea that I really could tackle these subjects. And that was exciting as hell for me and very gratifying. And I almost immediately forgot about ever again choosing a project because it represented, you know, kind of genre experimentation right, right. for me. Certainly sometimes that, that can be, you know, an element that attracts me. I've never really done something like that before or right. this is a this is you know, within this is a sequence or a tone that I haven't dealt with before but really sort of beginning and ending in a way with Apollo 13 yeah. from then on I, I just chose stories that I was fascinated by and, and movies that you know that old cliche things things that I would like to see well in Apollo 13 it seems like it was well you called it quote one of the real highlights of my career on so many levels close quote great movie that I get the sense was a passion project from start to finish here. You're back with Hanks. You're doing something that I, I gather had been, you know, space had been something of interest to you yes. your, your whole life and getting to do kind of cool things like shoot it in zero gravity. That was wild. But I mean, with something like that, were there people still before it, it obviously turned out successfully, but were there people that were saying space movies don't work or a movie where people all know how it ends is is not a way to go or, well, or things the, like that. The studio was very supportive. Yeah. Brian Grazer has a, a very good nose for not only a story but what audiences will respond to. He yeah. always has. He he really believed in it. He believed in it because of the suspense. He believed in the the human interest side of the story and just on a gut level. I was very worried about it. I didn't want to acknowledge this anxiety that I felt because I, you know, Universal wanted to make the movie and I and I wanted to direct it. Right. But there aren't many better movies than the right stuff, no. and that movie was very well reviewed, but people really didn't go to see it. So I had a fear that this might be a kind of a, a non-starter at the box office, but I I didn't care. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd had the same fear about Cocoon, and it wound up being very successful. Right. So I've, I've never felt like I, w I was a great market prognosticator. The movie was a blast to make, incredibly challenging. I had more, you know, sort of all-nighters working on the script, planning how we were going to shoot, working out how to, how to approach the zero-G and all of it. But it was, it was really a, just a great life experience, and, and I learned so much. In especially in post-production about the movie, as I screened it, I really gained a tremendous new understanding of how intelligent audiences could be when the project asked that of them. Yeah, you know, and I learned it again later with Ransom about mysteries right. and thrillers that when you you sort of engage an audience in that way, unlike a straightforward kind of middle of the road comedy, right. that you're you're inviting them. To learn, yeah. along with the feeling. Yeah. 
And I found that to be very satisfying to audiences on Apollo 13, and it really informed a lot of choices later on down the line. You said that Apollo 13, quote, gave me the confidence to do a beautiful mind, close quote. And just before we even, I think we have to just note that in between them, you did a movie that essentially predicted the reality TV era in which we live, for better or worse, Ed TV, which was great. But then, you know, so six years after Apollo 13, you do a beautiful mind. Another thing, I'm just going to quote back in setting up this question, quote, it was more demanding of me as a director than any film that I worked on so far, close quote. How did it even come to you? And, and was the hard thing really the subject matter or the what was what made it such a, a hurdle? The project came to pass because Brian Grazer and I were, were interested in mental illness in characters in movies. And we, went, we actually wound up developing three different movies. Two of them fell out and, and they just, the scripts didn't coalesce. One for very tragic reasons because it was a true story based on a very inspirational guy who was a schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, he went off his meds and committed an act of violence. He he killed his fiancée. And it was a reminder to us about how important it was to try to destigmatize this and to deal with it, but... But we couldn't really do that story. It was it was not it was not sending the message that we wanted to send, which right. was a message of, of understanding and hope, yeah. and not fear. And then there was an article in Vanity Fair, which was an, an excerpt from uh, Sylvia Nasser's book, Beautiful Mind. And Brian began developing it. I was very busy at that point because I was really focused on on doing uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas right. with Jim Carrey. Very complicated movie to make, logistically tricky, getting the tone. Uh, this is really before a lot of digital effects. Yeah. So almost everything was in camera, and it was it was exhausting and involving. Meanwhile, Akiva Goldsman struggled with the screenplay and suddenly came up with this, this great notion to actually let some of the, the characters, the hallucinations, be real characters. And it almost became like a ghost story. Yeah. And... It, it just elevated it in a remarkable way. Brian was struggling a little bit to put it together. There was a lot of interest. The studio knew they wanted to make it. At a certain point, just as I was winding down with, with The Grinch, he said, I know you haven't read this, Ron. You haven't had time. But before I go out to another director, I'd like to give you a look at this. But please don't please don't hem and haw about this. I mean, I love this as a producer. And if you want to do it, I'd love you to direct it. But But don't hold it up. And I said, sure. And I, I read it, and as exhausted as I was, it really was, as my wife Cheryl said when she read it, you know, she said, this is, this is sort of an, an answer to a prayer. This is the kind of story you've been really looking for. Mm-hmm. Not just the mental illness, but the really intricate, complicated relationships. And the reason I say it was so difficult to make was that balancing the reality and the hallucinations and, and drawing the audience into the experience of the mental illness, of what John Nash was going through, and, and which Russell Crowe was, was yeah. presenting so brilliantly, but also working with Russell Crowe, you know, a true artist, a brilliant, complicated guy tackling, you know, like the role of a lifetime. Yeah. And Akiva Goldsman stayed with the project. We kept working and rewriting. And, and he, because both of his parents were psychiatrists, was able to bring so much sort of authenticity to our approach to the disease. But I did a lot of research myself as mm-hmm. well. And I was trying to, to imbue this with as much detail yeah. and as much insight as I could and still 
take advantage of this wonderful screenplay with these twists and turns. Speaking of, you know, matrixes of of themes and layers, the love story was very, very important, but so was the story of his delusions. Yeah. And, the, and they, they intersected, of course, but they're also sort of two separate ideas. So directorially, I, I just had a lot of things to oh, figure so, out and, and, and not a tremendously long schedule. And it was a, I really enjoyed working on it. As I recall, you guys had to deal with some BS, I think is the best way of putting it, during the run-up to the Oscars that season. It, it's maybe sort of the beginning of the modern era of just like bare-knuckle nonsense that goes on during that time of year. Just briefly, I wonder what you made of that and also what when you ultimately did win. You know, you guys won Best Picture, which is incredible. But I think Best Director, what did that mean to a guy who had, it sounds like, you know, always wanted to be a director and... Even when you were doing it successfully, there was always something, you know, it's, oh, but it's only, it's mainly popular stuff. Oh, but it's mainly, was this, did it represent a certain Without a doubt, without a doubt. It yeah. was, you know, that, that incredible validation. Even though everybody involved in what we do knows you can't really decide what the best song is or the best <laughs> movie or the best TV show right. or, the, you know, it, but nonetheless, it's, you know, it's a tradition that I always wanted to be, a, you know, a part of on the on the on the winning side, and I'd been so disappointed because with Apollo thirteen, which was nominated in I don't know nine categories, and I'd been nominated for the Golden Globe mm-hmm. and the Directors Guild Award and and not the Oscar, and I'd had a couple of other near misses like where I was nominated for a DGA for Cocoon but not the Oscars, and I just began to feel like oh. It's just something about this. Is this is this some sort of sitcom <laughs> curse or you know a, a residual problem? Right. And I didn't really believe it or want to believe it, but I was you know it, it broke really 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 was a pretty heartbreaking for yeah. me on Apollo thirteen because I loved the movie so much yeah. and I was so proud of what I'd done directorially. Right. So when this happened on Beautiful Mind, it was in, incredibly uh, gratifying. And so you know a few years some years later, I was nominated again for Frost Nixon, which was also yeah thrilling yeah. and gratifying even though I didn't win it's you know it's just it is great to be invited to that circuit it's a lot of work but it it's also can be very collegial yeah. yes the campaigning can be a nightmare and and you know and and people trying to poison the project or sabotage its its legitimacy and so forth is that's a that's really a damn shame that 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 has come to be a part of the of the of the process yeah. but if I were to be nominated again, I would want to be a part of that season yeah. because it's an honor for the the movie, you know, or the television show, you know, and and, and it's also a great chance to meet people. I mean, I yeah. I've gotten to know Ridley Scott fairly well now, but I first really met him, you know, out out on on the, on the award season right, circuit or yeah. Chris Nolan. That's the way I got to know him oh, and other cool. people who, you know, I've come to really know and like. So as we, I, I hate to gloss over anything, but I know we're we're tight on time and we're coming to an incredible, roughly a year period leading up to the present. So I just want to just, I'm going to mention, and if there's anything you want to jump in and add before we get to some of this stuff, but I mean, the fact that you followed the Best Picture, Best Director Oscars with a Western, The Missing, which was really great, Kate Blanchett, Tommy Lee Jones, that was a bold move. I, I mean, always wanted to make a Western. Yeah. And and I, I loved that it was a kind of a feminist Western. Yeah. Uh, and both Kate Blanchett and Tommy Lee Jones were just a pleasure to, to work with. So it f- definitely fulfilled, really scratched an itch for me. Yeah. Then back with Russell Crowe and Cinderella Man, which I, I loved. I know that Thank his, uh, the timing of, of some 
stuff for him didn't help the opening of oh, the movie. Oh, I suppose but, that's true, yeah. yeah but it was got, a great it, movie. It, well, he was terrific in it and had injured his shoulder in pre-production training. And as a result, we couldn't get all the fight scenes done as quickly as we wanted to. And so he wound up having to not only stay fit and train, but he was in pain yeah. You know, the whole time that we were shooting. It was a, another really great performance, and I'm very proud of that movie. Yeah, it's terrific. And year after that was the first of your three Robert Langdon movies, the Dan Brown best-selling novels, that first one, The Da Vinci Code, which I believe was Imagine's most commercially successful film ever. I think it's our highest grosser, yeah. yeah. And and it was, a, it was a tremendous life experience, too. And in fact, the Dan Brown movies have been great adventures and a chance to work with Tom Hanks again. Yeah. Never the critics, darlings, <laughs> but we learned to, you know, sort of expect that in a way. And lots of people w- went went to see them, and they've, they gave us some great creative experiences and life experiences to make those projects. At this point, if you, if you do a movie and you don't get a great review, or if that seems to be the the response does it bother you or are you able to separate your experience from how people react to it i'm pretty good now about knowing what i think of the project but what i find frustrating is if i think it's going to damage us damage the movie damage its 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 opportunity in the in the marketplace really you think critics can still have that influence without a doubt yeah. you know especially with the database oh, web, yeah. websites or like rotten tomatoes you or know, i mean i'm i'm like that yeah, I, 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 you know, I check out those websites just yes. to see what I think, and so of course, uh, you know, I think I think they're a huge factor. But so is word of mouth, mm-hmm. and more than ever in yeah, certain social ways. Social media, yeah. social media really really matters, and I think the growth of the medium through what television has become, and the international growth of theatrical movies, and you know the the, the indie market, and the high profile. You know, sort of starting with revelatory Sundance Film Festival yeah. and what that's meant to American film history. Yeah. Stunning. A few things are more important than that in our history. But it's really raised the bar. And I think filmmakers are answering the call. I mean, it's easy to pick on superhero movies right. and say, oh, aren't we a little tired of them? But look at the filmmaking involved. Yes, there may be something formulaic about the story, you know, the stories that are told, but. You know, that is bravura filmmaking. And the indie movies, that the one, especially the ones that really break through and that yeah. we notice, well, they're limited in budget, yeah. more, a little more than ever. Yeah. But what's made up for an imagination and creative courage and the knowledge that audiences are more ambitious than ever. Mm-hmm. And for movies like Manchester by the Sea or Moonlight to do that well commercially nice. is really great news. It's great news. Your point about... You know how there is there is great filmmaking even in very kind of popcorny movies. Sometimes it does make you wonder if if somehow Jack Warner or somebody could be here and see what what was possible. Do we really think they wouldn't be doing that kind of a movie? They'd I don't be know. doing them. Yeah, of course they'd be doing them. And audiences guide the market. They just do. I've been around it all my yeah. life, and in many ways it hasn't changed very much. Mm-hmm. And the the greatest thing is. The storyteller's ability now to talk more specifically to niche audiences and for there to be actual commercial viability in those creative exchanges, you know. And and so that's something that wasn't around so much in the golden era or, or, or even into the, 
you know, even into the 60s and 70s. I mean, there were some cool indie movies made and some stuff that the studio was doing that we really, really remember. But if you look at those entire, at, those, at, the, at the history of, those, of the slates yeah. of each of those studios, they weren't all the conversation. No. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't be, no. no. Continuing to move along here, Frost Nixon, 2008, which you mentioned back at the Oscars with that one. My first chance to work with Peter Morgan. I was what a great say. talent. I, of course, I love writers. You know, I've had great, great relationships with world-class screenwriters. Uh, Gans and Mandel, yeah. Akiva Goldsman, David Kep, Peter Morgan, briefly Richard Price, Bob Dolman, a great writer, others. And... Those relationships have always meant so much to me, and Peter's become a good friend and, and collaborator. And Peter, also did in the Heart of the Sea. Uh, and Rush. And Rush. Rush so, yes. But in this case, you saw it on the West End and knew by intermission this was what you were going to do. Absolutely. For some reason, there at the Donmar Warehouse, which is an amazing place to see theater, directed by Michael Grandage, who's world-class, mm-hmm. uh, and very cinematic in his approach to theater— I just, I felt like I, all I wanted to do was take a steady cam up on stage <laughs> and start moving with this incredible dialogue and right. these, these, these really intense, surprisingly funny exchanges. I could just, I could just see it. Yeah. And I remember calling Risa Gertner, my agent at CAA, at intermission and saying, well, I need to see the second act, <laughs> but I think I would do it. And I, I don't think we need stars. I, 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 think, I think these actors are brilliant. This is really exciting. And I called her again. After, After the, the play, act, it's yeah. a, it only got better. It only got better. <laughs> and it's amazing that just two people talking can be that thrilling. I had a blast with it. And, and again, it's sort of a, a lesson I learned with Apollo 13. And sometimes claustrophobia can be your friend. Yeah. <laughs> and I had a real instinct as to how to open it up and make it as, you know, a little bit more cinematic, a little bit more involving for, for audiences. But basically, it was that great writing. Final pre-2017 question deals with with Russian in the Heart of the Sea, which were not only your collaborations with Peter Morgan, but also Chris Hemsworth, who it's both of them. What, where did that come from? And Rush in particular, just really sexy, edgy, different kind of movie. Well, Rush was a, a spec script that Peter had written, and he knew Nikki Lauda. It's the character that yes. Daniel Bruhl yes. played, the Austrian F1 driver from the 70s. And he discovered this rivalry. And, of course, Peter writes two-handers probably better than anybody else. The Queen and some great television movies and so forth. And I read the script, and he was struggling a little bit to get it made. Other directors were interested in it, but it was being put together independently. And it was another one like Frost Nixon where I just just committed. And I didn't know who was going to play any of the roles. He already had a beat on Daniel Bruhl. I met and agreed I thought it was fantastic yeah, yeah. we didn't know who James Hunt was going to be there were a number of actors few who we liked who turned it down who were bigger more established names but then I saw Thor and Peter Morgan did and he was very charming in that and I called up Kenneth Branagh and he said oh he's he's really got it mm-hmm. he's diligent yes the ladies love him <laughs> but you know he's he's got all, all kinds of possibilities yeah. here and you know he sent in a a tape kind of a self-audition that he was just James Hunt. He just won won the role and did a great job with it. Heart of the Sea was a project that Chris brought to me, and it was another exciting adventure to go on. That's great. So with our our final chapter here is 2017, where you're working as hard as ever. It's amazing. Let's start with Genius, where you'd worked with National Geographic before on this six-part doc narrative hybrid Mars, I think about a year ago. But they'd never done a scripted, full-fledged narrative scripted series before Genius, how did you and Brian come to this material and why take it to them? 
Well, they, they were looking to do scripted material, and Francie Calfo, who runs television at Imagine, knew that. Yeah. Courtney Monroe is the CEO at Nat Geo, brilliant CEO, by the way, great boss. She had let that be known. And this was a project that came to me through one of our executives at Imagine, Anna Culp, and, and she knew the people over at Odd Lot and who had been developing this as a feature for a long time and then had hired Noah Pink, a Canadian writer, to come in and, and uh, try to turn it into uh, a series. Yeah. And he'd written the first hour with them and, and a Bible. And Anna kept saying, you should read this, Ron. You know, it's for television. I'd not directed television since those TV movies, and I'd never done episodic television. Yeah. And I, I was slow getting there because I'd looked at a lot of Einstein projects over the years. And I was always interested in him as a character and always disappointed because I felt like the stories either weren't dramatic enough or they were covering too much territory and were too scattershot and, and episodic. But I read Noah's Hour, and I thought it was great. And then I had a conversation with him and learned sort of how he thought we could approach the series. It was based on Walter Isaacson's book. I read that, and I said, well, look, this happens to fit perfectly in my schedule if we could if we could really move on this, and if we know we're doing it and set aside a certain amount of time, I would commit to this. And Nat Geo read it and committed. And it was almost as fast a green light as that one I told you about <laughs> yes. with Roger Corman <laughs> right. and Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> Brian Grazer took it to Peter Rice and Courtney Monroe. Brian completely believed in it. Tremendous talent. Showrunner Ken Biller came in and immediately had ideas not only about that first hour, but the entire series that took Noah's ideas and developed them even further. And it wound up being a fantastic creative experience. And I should also say, Ken directed the last three episodes in addition to show running. And, he, you know, so I'm very proud of my contributions and the work I was able to do on the first episode, setting the style, creating an aesthetic. I found it very um, creatively rewarding. Well, what's so interesting, though, is that you guys, you know, I think everybody, it's, it's one of these situations, everybody n- knows of Einstein, but nobody can tell you that much. Uh, very few people can tell you that much about him or as a person. And for you guys to start literally from the first scene in the pilot, this is your episode where he's having sex. It's like, this is not the Einstein you grew up hearing <laughs> no, about. Not. This is a real person. It was, you know, again, Noah's initial script promised that and sort of defined that possibility. So the book, you know, corroborates the different ways in which Albert Einstein does surprise you yeah. as a character and his life surprises you and it's incredibly prescient. The struggles that, that he went through, the dangers that he faced, you know, we're, we're not immune to that no. anymore no. and we never have been. From the immigration to the everything. Uh, to the rise of fascism yeah. and, the Nazi, and the Nazi party and what that, you know, meant. Bigotry, he was mm-hmm. a Jew and he struggled against, against that. He was a free thinker but very bohemian. I mean, you, you you see it in you know in his romantic life, but you also see it in the way he, he he solved problems and approached his career and life. And he was very free spirited. And sometimes that threatened to undo him yeah. within the the rigid institutions of academia. We came so close as a species to not benefiting from the brilliance, yes, the genius of Albert yeah. Einstein, that it's shocking. And I felt like that's where the stress and the pressure could be in this series. And from episode one, I tried to present that in in cinematic ways 
while telling this fascinating human interest story. Oh, that's great. And and we should note, you guys at Imagine, and I think you specifically have produced so many great episodic TV things. I think Felicity, Parenthood, Rested Development, on and on. But it's 24, cool. 24 Empire. yeah, Empire, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's cool to have you directing it, and I'm excited. I know there's going to be additional seasons I believe, right, as well. It's of genius, yes. but with different Dif- d- different characters, which yes. we still we, we have not ready to announce yet. Right. But okay. we're still we're still searching. I got so lucky. I think of myself as an actor's director, and I got so lucky with a script that would attract such a strong cast. Not just Jeffrey Rush right. as the as the elder Albert Einstein, right. the iconic Einstein yeah. that we're more familiar with. But Johnny Flynn, yeah. who plays the the yeah. the young struggling Albert Einstein, they did so much great work together to create, you know, a uniform, cohesive characterization yeah. of this of of this man. But the but the rest of the cast, Emily Watson and and, and onward, just a great, fantastic crew, great cinematographer. I really had an, an excellent experience. We had Jeffrey on this podcast recently, and he was saying that he would lo- he would like to lobby you, and maybe he's already done this to adopt the American Horror Story model and bring the same people back in different roles for the different seasons. I don't know if it's logistically possible, but it would be pretty cool. Well, we have to start with making a selection along with, you know, Nat Geo. Yeah. But we're working on that. And he's mentioned that to us. And, and my God, that's an exciting thing to consider. You could do a little worse, yeah. Yeah. He's a pleasure. You know, I I knew he would bring not only his chameleon-like sort of skills, but if there's a surprise, it's how astute... He was, and 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 even helping to refine the character. It's, he's so incredibly nuanced. He's very funny, but in all, he even on a television tempo and pace, he he just brought so much detail yeah. to the characterization. It was amazing. Johnny Flynn was inspired by that, but he's an inspired guy himself. Yeah. Well, that was your 2017 limited series, as we now call, I guess, instead of miniseries. But then you've also got your 2017 TV documentary which is The Beatles' Eight Days a Week, the touring years, which explores these four years between 62 and 66 when they were touring before they go in the studio and decide to give up the touring. And I understand you were a big Beatles guy as a kid. So all these years later, how did it come around that you're now sitting there between Ringo Starr and Paul <laughs> McCartney, where a lot of people would like to be? Yeah, I was. that was unexpected, to say the <laughs> least. And I, I was a Beatles fan, like everybody was a Beatles fan, but I was not a Beatles fanatic, yeah. not encyclopedic mm-hmm. about them. I had the honor and pleasure of meeting all the Beatles except George Harrison, wow. who I then heard a lot about because he was a big Formula One fan. Okay. So Nicky Lauda knew him well, wow. and others around the Formula One circuit really loved George Harrison. But when I had this opportunity, I'd already done one documentary, Made in America, yeah. which was about this Jay-Z festival. And, and I found that fascinating. That kind of fell in my lap because Jay-Z knew Brian Grazer. So did Steve Stout, who was a producer on it from American Gangster. Yep. And they sort of took a flyer and asked if I would ever want to sort of take a camera crew or two and, and see if we could build a, a documentary out of this music festival. It happened to fit perfectly in my schedule. Right. The late, now sadly late, great Jonathan Demme, who I was on the board of the Jacob Burns Film Center in Westchester County yeah. with. I was at a board meeting and I said, I, I've i thought about doing documentaries, Jonathan, but I don't know. You've done so many brilliant ones. Can you talk me through it a little bit? And he said, you'll just do it. You'll love it. Go in with a plan, but know that, you know, be ready for it to be upended. Right. That's documentary filmmaking. And you'll be surprised how much 
of what you've learned you're going to be able to apply to this medium. He was a cheerleader, as was his nature. I miss him so much already. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I did. And I had a great experience on the on the Jay-Z yeah. project. I really enjoyed it. So when Nigel Sinclair, who produced a lot of great rock and roll documentaries, yeah. Bob Dylan, yeah. George Harrison, Living right. in the Material World, that Scorsese had done, great, knowledgeable uh, a filmmaker in his own right. And uh, he said, the Beatles are interested in doing you know, a limited documentary just about their touring years. And they've got some some new tracks, some bootleg soundtracks, soundboards that were hidden away, some new footage collected from fans, but they only want to do the touring years, 62 to 66. And I thought, well, that was maybe a limitation, but I began to read and listen to the music again and look at some of the interviews, not for our documentary, right, but right. just classic yeah. interviews. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. This is a coming-of-age story in a way, but it's also a group adventure story. It's almost an odyssey. They're running a gauntlet here because then when they became the Beatles and Beatlemania, you know, their lives changed, and yet they were still continuing to create, and these boys from Liverpool were facing pressures that few can imagine. And I, I pitched it almost like Das Boat. <laughs> I, I had to talk to everybody. Yeah. I had to talk to, yeah. to Paul and, and Ringo and, and Yoko and Olivia and, and, of course, the people at Apple. They're Apple. Yes, exactly. Um, and Jeff Jones and company. Right. And I, I pitched it that way, and they accepted it. And they gave me my usual final cut controls, asked nothing of me. The only thing that was asked of me by anybody was Paul McCartney on a phone call said, you know, I'm thinking a lot about this period of time. And I saw something on the internet that a fan put together. I had nothing to do with it. And it's all pictures of John and I during that period when we were this songwriting team. He said, you know, even I still feel some of the fallout of the breakup now. And there, there's, there was that acrimony left a bitter taste in a lot of people's hearts and a lot of people's minds. And when I saw that video... I was reminded that we were like brothers then and how close we were. And it was more than a being a songwriting team. And if you could if you could evoke that, and I hope I did. Absolutely. It, it's a, it, was, it was a huge challenge. I realized once I was into it and it was announced, I'd gone into it as just a, a really great creative exercise and a life experience, right. you know, a chance to interview those guys and to think back and understand the politics of the time and the socio political ramifications of their music and understand their artistry a little bit more, which I really found inspiring mm-hmm. as I as I delved into it. But it, as soon as it was announced and the sort of the first wave of internet feedback came, it was positive, but there was an air, kind of an element of don't fuck this up. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of an undercurrent of, uh, oh, Ron Howard, okay, well, let's just fold our arms and let's just no, see. but then you did the smartest thing, it seems, which was to say to the public, all right, you you chip in now, right? And that's the most amazing thing. This was really crowdsourced. It, well, it was, but that that work had actually gone on before yeah, I came okay, on board, okay. and that so they knew they had these soundboards. Okay. They knew they had this footage. The footage. In there that, was yeah. one more piece of footage that came in that wound up being incredibly valuable because it, it dealt with their final uh, live performance at Candlestick Park. This in is 66. the woman in San Francisco. This woman in San Francisco is incredible. <laughs> she called up and she said, "You know, I was at that concert, and I've got some." some super eight under my bed that that might be of the concert it's never it's uh, you know it's never been processed do you want it and i mean might as well have been an outbreak right, scene right, i mean right. people, 
I think people were probably showing up in, you know, in, in pressurized suits. Don't and, mail it, right? Just work, we'll come to you. Yeah. Yeah. But it wound up being some, some really important shots. And it was very interesting for me. I love the music. It was, uh, look, you could never get that soundtrack in a regular movie. It was, it was it, you know, such a plus. But it kind of evolved from them wanting a concert movie to a little bit more of a, of a kind of a study of the band. Not so much as individuals, but as a group and a, a collective. And I was very interested in what they went through and the remarkable feat, the creative feat, of continuing to evolve, push their genre, their medium, in you know really unparalleled ways while they were navigating Beatlemania. And, and, you know, some of that was emotionally dangerous and some of it was physically dangerous. Mm-hmm. And all of it was life-altering. Well, the reason they stopped touring was because it just was too overwhelming, right? It was too overwhelming. They couldn't, they, they couldn't be heard. There were death threats. Mm-hmm. We never could really deal with that too clearly in the, in the movie because we, we honestly couldn't get any of them. They're very, they're very cavalier about it all. Right. And so we never could get the admission that that was a, a real threat, mm-hmm. but we, I tried to infer it as best I could. Yeah. But it was really interesting, along with with Paul Crowder, our editor, to try to build scenes. And a lot of people say, "Well, I never saw that footage before." And they're right. There are, there are minutes of footage that you haven't seen built into and adding to songs. Yeah. But there's a lot on YouTube, and a lot of the material you have seen before. But we were able to go back and get some of those dailies and re-edit some of those performance pieces so they were focusing on the character and, again, that sort of thematic yeah. that that I was trying to convey through a particular scene or sequence. So it made a lot of the scenes sort of look and feel more more personal, which is what I was hoping the movie oh, could do. My, my th- I felt like my mandate as a storyteller here was to really respect the Beatle fans who knew the ones who lived and breathed and read and listened and listened again and watched and viewed and 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 loved the Beatles for for decades, mm-hmm. and I wanted them to to feel even if it wasn't dazzlingly new, that it was another perspective that could offer something to them, and that it was certainly authentic. Yeah. But I also really wanted the people who had grown up with the the Beatles. I guess I'm thinking of the millennials more or yeah, less. Yeah. Yeah and thought they knew something about it, to really understand in a specific and palpable way what that journey was about and what that time period was about. That's fantastic. Well, the last question is this. After having literally spent your entire life in this business, I would think you'd certainly be entitled to slow down the pace a little bit. So what is it that keeps you you know, pushing yourself and what is left on the to-do list for you? Is there anything that you know, in the way that maybe early on, if I'd asked you, you in your career, you you would have said, all right, I want to direct, then I want to direct movies, then I want to direct a dramatic movie or whatever it might have been along the way. Basically, why do you keep doing it and, and what is left to do? Well, I, I've got projects that I'm in development on that I, you know, I, I'd be very upset if I didn't get to make. Yeah. I may or may not get to do them all, but I'm really enjoying it. I really love what technology is allowing me to do. I'm able to get more of what's in my head onto the screen, whether that's a television screen or a movie screen. You've gone digital. Yeah, I've gone digital. I don't really care too much about the distribution platform. Mm-hmm. I care about the story, mm-hmm. and I care about what it can what it can mean to audiences. Of course, I love the big screen experience as a movie goer, and I like to f- I like to film and stage appropriately for that. But I'm also 
incredibly excited by what television has become, uh, what it means to our company at Imagine, not just as a business, but yeah. the, but just these creative opportunities, yeah. you know, where a lot, uh, like what Genius has, has turned out to be or what Shots Fired has yeah. been for our company this year. And Francie Calfo does a great job at Imagine. Brian Grazer loves movies, but he loves television. He came out of television originally. And this this time of of all these possibilities and this experimentation that's going on and executives who really support that sort of experimentation is really gratifying for creative people. So I wouldn't want to miss this yeah. wave. I'm really glad all this is happening at a time in my life when I, you know, I plan to do it for another 15 or 20 yeah. years. And I've got energy and experience. I've got experience behind me and the energy to really be a part of it. Yeah. So what we're going through at Imagine Entertainment, which is more autonomy, more independence, raising money, and and is just broadening the range of possibilities for, for us in terms of our collaborators. We're able to, to scale up in a way simply by just building on our relationships yeah. more than anything. It's really thrilling. Well, it's exciting to follow, and I can't thank you enough for all this generous time and, and memories. It's, it's terrific. So thanks a lot. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.